So this morning, continuing in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 11, blessed and the particularly persecuted part one. Now here at the end of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus brings a radical message of the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom that the king himself reigns and that the king's reign is being manifest in his people. It's being manifest not as the world would expect. For after all, this is not the kingdom of the world. This is the kingdom of, the, of heaven being proclaimed by the king. Here in Matthew chapter 5, we see a lot of blessings in the Beatitudes. But the real blessing is the King Himself. Blessing that is happiness due to a favorable circumstance. Blessings that as we've seen over the last several weeks are both now in the present and also not yet still in the future. When we consider the blessing of the King that it is now, that blessing belongs to those that are poor in spirit. Those that are bankrupt of their own accord apart from the Holy Spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven right now. Not that theirs one day will be the kingdom of heaven, but that it currently is, for they are the subjects of the king. They are the saints, they are the saved, they are what Scripture would call the new creation, with the character of Christ Jesus being formed in them. His Spirit in us. His mourning over sin becoming ours. His meekness. Not weakness, but instead great power under proper control. It is His righteousness. And His mercy. His pure heart and His peace being formed in the life of His people. Therefore, we can say that the Sermon on the Mount is not simply a formula for a blessed life, but instead describes the life of those who are blessed. In other words, contrary to what you see in Acts chapter 2, what you see in Matthew chapter 5 is not primarily an evangelical sermon, though doubtlessly many will be saved through it but instead is an exhortation to those who belong or will belong to the kingdom. The will and the character of the king being manifest in his subjects. It's out of this Christ in us that flows all of the blessings that are not yet. The Christ in us that is now for the poor, poor of spirit produce in us things that will later produce a blessing of their own for comfort, the inheritance of the earth, to be satisfied by Christ's righteousness, to receive mercy, to see God, to be called the sons of God. Such a radical kingdom in the midst of this world will not draw a favorable eye. And so after the body of the Beatitudes Jesus continues in chapter 5 of Matthew in verses 10 and 11 and says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my 
account? Well, persecution. Persecution is a weighty topic. And if you just look at the language that is being used, the fact of the matter is, is that the word here that we translated as persecute simply means to pursue. It can be used in the both in the good and in the bad. It can be positive or negative. However, in the New Testament, speaking of the way that Christ and His people are pursued, it is overwhelmingly used in the negative sense. All we have to do to understand verse 10 is look at the context of verse 11 to understand what that persecution will be couched in. Verse 11, He says, Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. This pursuing of a people who are blessed, of a people to whom belong the kingdom of heaven, is a pursuit that is couched in all sorts of false accusation, evil, and reviling. Now the fact of the matter is, is from the experiential standpoint here at Mount Zion, or for that fact of the matter, most churches here in the United States, the MTBC experience is that we may have been reviled and we may have had uttered evil uttered against us, either as individuals or as a church body. And yet the reality is, is most of us have never been persecuted to any meaningful degree. Now, I want to be careful saying that, and I want to qualify what I mean, because the fact of the matter is, is if you're the one being persecuted, to any degree it feels like a meaningful degree. But if you look at the context of the day in which this was spoken, and the persecution that Jesus was talking about, that was first going to come on Himself and then come on His hearers, then we can say, historically speaking, and even for the persecution that is coming on many Christians, even as we sit here listening to the Word of God today, the fact of the matter is, is if you live in the Bible Belt, I think it's fair to say of all the persecution that's out there that we have never been persecuted to a meaningful degree. Never been in fear for my life because of the testimony of Christ. I've never been in fear for the, 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 the life or, or the physical well-being of my wife. I've never been in fear of the life or physical well-being of our children because of the testimony of Christ. When I consider those things and consider what is all around the world around us, I want to say, praise the Lord. But maybe I shouldn't. For blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, we have a, a very kind of narrow... No, we don't have just a narrow American view of what it means to be a Christian. We have a narrow Bible Belt Southern view of what it means to be a Christian. You know, that the reality is, is the last time there were good numbers available was 2020, and those numbers are almost certainly grossly underreported for various reasons. But in 2020, it was averaged that 13 Christians were killed for their faith worldwide a day. That's 
over 4,700 a year. That means that when you got to Sunday school this morning, statistically speaking, before you leave this sermon today, one of your brothers or sisters in Christ would be killed for the testimony of their faith. Worldwide, one in eight Christians face some type of meaningful persecution that is life-altering. And so when you consider that, some of the worst of it right now is going on in Nigeria. As a matter of fact, for violent attacks on Christians that end in death, if um, in 2020 the, the percentage was three out of four would have occurred in Nigeria alone. They, have a, uh, they prefer hatchet attacks and machetes. And so when you look at the case of the church, both currently worldwide and historically for the last 2,000 years, I think you have to ask yourself, at least for a moment, why not here? Why don't we experience that here? Why isn't that the case in Arkansas? Why isn't that the case you know, in Sebastian County, uh, in Greenwood or Hackett or Fort Smith? Why isn't that the case here at Mount Zion? Why isn't it? Why, why, isn't, why aren't we seeing those kind of things? And I don't think we can give a definitive answer, and that's not what this sermon's about, but I think it's important to understand the answer because it's going to reflect on the way that you look at the next couple of sermons moving forward. Because if you consider the condition that we have today here and the bubble that we have been born in, raised in, and are currently functioning in, if you consider that to be the permanent nature and the norm for the kingdom of heaven in the midst of exile in the kingdom of this world, then you will only see what we're going to talk about today and over the next couple of weeks as something that is abstract and intellectual. And if you see it that way, it will fail to function to equip you for what Scripture says certainly stands before the people of God. And we don't want that. And so, basically, when considering the possibilities for why we don't see that in America today, I think there is two things that we should consider. Number one, perhaps Christians here have not manifest righteousness in a sufficient way to provoke persecution. That is certainly a possibility. As a matter of fact, it almost certainly to some degree is a reality. And I'm not throwing stones here, I'm talking about myself, and, and I'm not going to quote a bunch of you know, stats or stuff to prove that, but the fact of the matter is, I think we all understand that we can be a lot bolder for our faith. And that there's times when we keep quiet, when, when we ought to speak, and there's times that we're speaking when we ought to be keeping quiet or speaking about something else. And we have to consider that we've not manifest righteousness sufficiently to provoke a persecution. But I think we would be foolish to consider that as the only cause. Perhaps we have been fortunate to be born in a period of particular grace, of acceptance, tolerance, and even favor from the people. We can point to a couple of those periods of grace in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New. They exist. They are not the norm. They're like bubbles on the timeline that the Lord typically brings about for a very particular purpose. 
and, and, and I have my opinion and you may have your opinion on what the purpose of that has been here in the United States, but one of the things that you can say for certain is they are the exception to the rule, not the rule, and that they are limited historically both in time and geography. And friends, I would be dishonest with you today if I did not tell you that it is my personal belief that the bubble here is heading towards its end. That we are past the midway point of the curve and are on the downhill slide. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us because the norm for the kingdom of heaven in the midst of this world is not favor from the people. The norm for the kingdom of heaven in the midst of this world is persecution. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 and says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's an absolute statement. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul writes to Timothy and says, Listen, if you want to be godly in Christ, you need to understand you're going to have some experiences that are bad. But not only are they bad, but they're progressively getting worse. Evil people and imposters going from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Man, I'll tell you, sometimes Paul gives you fits on the exegetical end, but that one right there is easy. He uses all the elementary school words, right? It's, it's straightforward concepts. Listen, if you want to be godly, Christ, you're going to be persecuted. It's going to be bad. It's going to get worse. And so today, I just want to ask two questions. Because if this doesn't apply to us right now, it almost certainly will soon. Don't be. Don't be like Josiah. Not you. Your namesake. King Josiah, he got most of it right most of the time. But one of his biggest failures came when the Lord spoke to him about coming judgment that would come in generations after his. As a matter of fact, because of the way that he was faithful to the Lord, the Lord said it's not going to come in your day, but it's going to come later. And he sighed a sigh of relief. And Scripture says that he thought in his heart, well, good, at least it won't come in my day. If we're going to be prepared for what well may come on us, if we're going to be able to prepare our children and their children for what will almost certainly come up on them, then we can't have that attitude. It can't be academic. It can't be abstract. It has to be real and it has to be personal. And before it's all said and done, right here in chapter Five, Jesus is going to get very personal with it. We're going to get to that later. Today I want to ask two questions. Number one, what triggers this kind of persecution? What triggers it? And we're not going to look at it today. I promise you, introduction. We're not going to look at the way it unfolds. We're just going to look at what triggers it. And then the second thing we're going to begin to ask very shortly is how should those who are blessed in persecution respond? What triggers the persecution that Jesus is talking about? And when that persecution comes, how should we respond? So, question number one. What triggers blessed persecution? And I say it that way because there's all sorts of persecution in this world and not all of it is blessed. 
The reality is, is what Jesus is talking about is something very specific. A type of persecution that has attached to it a particular type of favorable circumstance, even unto the kingdom of heaven. And so the persecution we're talking about is triggered not just by any old thing. This is not just run-of-the-mill, kind of cookie-cutter persecution. It certainly wouldn't be prompted by anything that was evil. As a matter of fact, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so like a lot of the things that Peter likes to talk about, Peter says there are two types of suffering, and in this case, two types of suffering for persecution that occur in this world. It's like there's two kinds of service to God that Peter will also talk about. There's a kind that is bad, that you shouldn't do, and a type that is good, that you should. So let a person not be suffering, let him not be persecuted because he's done something evil and the good guys are out to get him. But if a man or a woman or a child is going to suffer, let him suffer for seeking the good things of God which is exactly what Jesus is talking about. In verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Persecuted for righteousness' sake. Righteous is one of those words that gets thrown around like uh, holiness a lot in uh, church circles. We use it a lot. We don't necessarily know what it means. Most people think righteousness would simply be that which is good, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. The word righteous literally means the right. Call it righteousness. It means the right. That which is right. As in there are things that are wrong, and there are things that are right, and that which is right is righteous. Men will endlessly debate about what the righteous standard is. You ever been in those kind of discussions? Men love a gray area, place to bob and weave, and they'll debate. They'll give you scenarios. What if it's like this? What if it's like that? Is it right to steal? No, it's not right to steal. Is it right to steal if I'm going to starve to death if I don't? All of this kind of stuff. Is the vain imagination of the minds of men. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, Solomon speaks of it this way when he says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Men will argue endlessly about what the righteous standard actually is, but God won't. But righteousness is something that is related but just slightly different than what it means to be truly righteous. Righteousness is an abstraction out of what is righteous. That is to say, righteousness is the fulfillment of the righteous standard. So if you have a standard, whatever it may be, you may look at it like the Ten Commandments, uh, for instance, or you may consult uh, the legal code that we fall under in the United States and then Arkansas and Sebastian County and then whatever township that you live in. Maybe you consult the legal code if your business has been that way. Um, whatever the case may be, uh, maybe your uh, employer has you know, a policy and procedure manual. Here's the standard. 
here's what's right, here's what's righteous, and righteousness is when you go out and you fulfill that standard. And so while what's right may be static and can sit on a shelf, righteousness can never sit on a shelf. Righteousness only exists in the doing. Which is why, and we'll just jump ahead to next week just a little bit. This is why you don't see anyone persecuted unto death for intellectually holding to the principles of Christianity. Now see, when I go into that whole, this is what righteousness is, this is what righteousness is, I know it's easy to get bored and go, man, does this stuff matter? Yes, it matters. Because Jesus didn't say, blessed are the persecuted who are persecuted for holding the concept of what is right. You know why? Because nobody's persecuted for that. They're persecuted when they go out and fulfill the standard when they go out and apply righteousness, when they go out and what is righteous becomes righteousness in their action, that's when persecution comes. And that is what Christ says, if it is for righteousness' sake, is blessed. And so, if doing righteousness means doing that which is right, then you have to ask yourself, what is the righteous standard that Christ is talking about? Once again, is it the Ten Commandments? Is it the law? He's going to have a lot of things to say about the Pharisees and the way they uphold the law and that not being sufficient righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven. So here when he's speaking to the, these people at the beginning of his ministry, we have to ask, if you're being persecuted for righteousness' sake, and that is the application of that which is right, then what is right? What is right? What is righteous? Therefore, what can we go do in righteousness? And you can't just use the, the, the fill-in-the-blank answer of the day because the Pharisees have been using the fill-in answer of the day as being the law for centuries. And Jesus says that they're going to split the gates of hell wide open. So what is it? What is the right? You want to be blessed? You say, I've got the kind of guts to, 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 to be persecuted if that's what is necessary. And so I've got to know what's right so I can go out and be righteous. What, 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 do, I, what do I do? What's, what's the right? Well, as often is the case with Scripture context, is our answer. Jesus tells us. You'll notice that verses 10 and 11 are very similar. As a matter of fact, they use the same word in the Greek two different ways or two different times one in verse 10 and one in verse 11 it's translated different in the ESV but it's the same word in the Greek and in verse 10 it's the word sake and in verse 11 it's the word or the phrase on account and so in verse 10 he says blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake so because of righteousness because of actively fulfilling that which is right they are being Persecuted. That's what's causing this. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then in verse 11, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. The word sake, for righteousness' sake, 
And verse 10 is the same word that gets translated as on account in verse 11. This is the reason that persecution is coming. The reason that persecution is coming in verse 10 is because of righteousness. The reason that reviling and persecution and evil that is false is coming against you in verse 11 is on the account of Christ. The same events with the same causality. Two different labels. What causes persecution? Righteousness. What's the standard by which we are righteous? The same thing that causes the persecution in verse 11. Verse 11 is a developed restatement of verse 10. The righteousness in question is nothing less than Jesus Christ Himself. Now this should start ringing in your brain back to last week. All of these things... God only blesses that which is excellent and good. And none are good except for God alone. If you're blessed because you're a peacemaker, it's the peace of Jesus Christ. If you're blessed because you're meek, it's the meekness of Jesus Christ. If you're blessed because you hunger and thirst after righteousness, it's because you hunger and thirst after Jesus Christ. He says, look, man, why are you persecuted? You're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why are you persecuted? You're persecuted on account of My name. The righteousness in question is nothing less than Christ. And it always has to be this way for a Christian. It always has to be this way. It can't be any other way because of the nature of our salvation. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 26 through 31, Paul writes to the church there, and he says this, I want you to consider your calling. Alright, so the first thing we've got to do here is understand that what, we're, what Paul's about to discuss is the nature of our calling. The nature of, the, of our calling that came through being poor in spirit. The nature of our calling that brings us to Christ, the new creation, Christ being formed in us, that results in the now blessing of belonging to the kingdom of heaven. I want you to consider the, your calling, brothers. What does it look like? It looks like this. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. You know what? You can wad that all up in a ball and say... That is a description of the poor in spirit receiving the kingdom of heaven. That's what that is. I mean, look at it. God chose what is foolish in the world. He chose the poor in spirit. God chose what is weak. God chose what is low. Even the things that are not bankrupt. Even the things that are not. Chose the poor in spirit to give the kingdom of heaven. This is the nature of your calling. Why did he do that? Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
so that we would all know across all the centuries and the millennium that it's not about us, but it's about Him. So that the praise and the honor and the glory doesn't go to men, but goes to God who brought it to be, who called something out of nothing. And then He says this in verse 30, and because of Him, because of Him, now guys, we're about to get gritty with enduring persecution because of God. And this is where you have to start. Because of Him you are in Christ Jesus. Man, when you talk about endurance, first thing that pops to mind, stuff like Matthew 24, those that endure to the end will be saved because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold, and then they'll persecute you and pursue you and kick you out of the synagogues and even put you in prison and to death because of His name. But those who endure to the end, that's a pretty loose, um, that's a pretty loose um, uh, paraphrase, but, but those who endure to the end will be saved. You go, okay, man, you've got to be His, you've got to endure to the end. Persecution is coming. Um, evil men are going from bad to worse. How are you going to be able to do this? And the answer is, is you had to go from being foolish to wise. You had to go from being weak to strong. You had to go from being low and despised. Even not being at all poor in spirit to the thing that He has called you to be. Consider your calling. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of Him, why are you saved? I think it's a very pertinent question to ask. Why are you saved? Some people don't know how they were saved because they were taught wrong. And so they don't have the verbiage to be able to explain it even though it's in their heart. And you'll figure that out pretty quick when you start talking to them. Some people don't know how they're saved because they haven't been saved. They've just been told they were. And so you'll ask them, how are you saved? And they'll say stuff like, well, I, I made a decision. I, I was baptized. Um, you know, I believe, whatever the case may be, and it's very, it's very human-centric. It's very I, I, I. I did this, I did that, those sorts of things. One of the things that's been an incredible blessing to me over the years is to listen to the way that our kids talk about salvation when they come to talk about it. I always ask them the same thing. How do you know you're saved? Man, in the last couple of years, I've had children say stuff to me like, He called my name. The Holy Spirit told me I was. My favorite most recently is God said you're welcome. Nice. He told me I was His. And this, this stuff isn't just... It's not just high doctrine. It has profound ability to produce results when the trial comes. And so Paul says, consider your calling. Remember what you were. You were bankrupt. You were poor in spirit. And God called something out of nothing. And that was His doing so that no man could boast. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of you. Because of Him. And then he says this, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
Friends, you know what Paul just said? That wisdom, consider your calling. If you're His, the wisdom that you have is not the thoughts of your own mind. It's Christ. It's Christ's mind being given to you, which Paul will later say, you have been given the mind of Christ. Wisdom to the Christian is not the application of knowledge, even though that's what would fit the Greek, the Greek vocabulary. Wisdom to the Christian is a person. It is Christ. And so too, sanctification. He is the one we're being conformed to. So too, redemption. Our redemption is, is not a legal status. Our redemption is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so too is our righteousness. Man, what's your righteousness? Well, I'm good at being honest, but I'm bad at being angry. No. What's your righteousness? Your righteousness, if you are called, is Jesus Christ. You understand that it's not just the for the sake of and on account of that lead us to understand that chapter 5 verse 10 and chapter verse 5 verse 11 are speaking of the same thing. It's the fact that the righteousness that's being spoken of in verse 10 is Christ who's being spoken of in verse 11. And Christ who is being spoken of in verse 11 is the righteousness of verse 10. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, those who are persecuted for My sake. As we've seen last week, the Gospel of the Kingdom is Christ and His righteousness being formed in us. Because that's the question we're asking, right? What triggers this kind of persecution? Which is why we said earlier, intellectually holding to a standard will not get you persecuted. Acting out of it will. Christ and His righteousness is being formed in us. Which is why Paul doesn't just say to the Corinthians here in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians that Christ has become your righteousness, but then he writes in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5 verse 21 and says that you are being made into that righteousness. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now friends, that's some heavy stuff. You say, you know, you feel a little wooden and blocky this morning. I know I do. You know why? Because I've got about five different threads that are all running in the background at the same time and I'm trying to keep all the balls in the air while just putting the plate on the table. I look forward to the next couple weeks where we can start dealing with them one at a time. We were nothing. Consider your calling. We were nothing. We are poor in spirit. And ours became the kingdom of heaven. How? How? Because of Him. Because of Him who calls into existence what doesn't exist. He took on purpose what was nothing and wasn't real to make it something that is real specifically so that when men glory, they would glory in Him and not in themselves. He became our righteousness. Blessed, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake, He says, and it's always going to happen. 
Because you didn't stop there. He didn't just say, I'll be your righteousness. He said, I will cause my righteousness to be formed in you. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What an incredible statement. And glory to God, man. I mean, can you, really? That He would take what was His and just His. Not just the standard that said this is who God is, but the Son that came doing not just that which was righteous, but that which was doing righteousness and did it perfectly. said, I'm going to give it to you as your righteousness and then by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to form it. I'm going to manifest it in you. Glory to God. Triggers persecution every time. Here's why. Because of the Gospel of John chapter 15 in verses 18 through 21. John 15, verse 18. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You say a lot of stuff here, but what we just have, have just kind of gone through together about Christ becoming our righteousness and then His righteousness being formed in us, man, it brings a whole new enlightenment onto this passage. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You know what? You want to put that in modern lingo? Jesus looks at His disciples and says, boys, you're not unique and you're not special. It's going to be tough. Man, but you need to know, and I don't say that to be derogatory, like you need to know that. You, you need to know that. You need to know you're not the only one. Because we're not going to look at it this week, but when you make the transition from verse 10 to verse 11, it goes from being a generalized statement about the nature of the kingdom to being intensely personal down to the individual. And then he's going to develop that further in verse 12, as unto the prophets. Yikes. So you need to know, you need to have it deep in your heart and deep in your mind, that you're not special, you're not unique in this. Or, or to put it in a way that, that might be more easily received by our culture today, you're not alone. You're not alone. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember your calling. You were nothing. I chose you out of that. You were poor in spirit, and I've made you the richest that a human being can be. You have the kingdom of heaven itself. Remember... The word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So what Jesus says, Jesus says is this, they're going to do all of these things to you on account of me. And they're doing them to me on account of the fact that they don't know the Father who sent me and I am the Father of one. Basically what he's saying is this, is they are Romans chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2, full on lawless rebels that hate everything about the dominion of an eternal God who created them. 
And so they don't know Him. They hate Him. They are apart from Him. I am Him. We are one. And He has sent me. And so they hate me. And now because of me, they're also going to hate you. But now we understand a little bit more why. It's not just hatred by association. It's not simply hatred because they're going to be saying the same things that Jesus was saying. It's not simply hatred because they hold to the same points and the same truisms that Jesus held to. It's hatred because the Him that they hated is being formed in them. In them. They are seeing the same thing. Man, when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, when you are persecuted for Christ's sake, it's because sanctification is having its day and Christ's righteousness is being formed in you in such a way that it offends that which is lost. And all the reviling and evil false accusation and persecution even unto death that comes with it. And so when it comes, understand... Because, hey man, this is about the blessed persecuted. Not the blessed idiots. This, this is not about, you know, some dime store theologian that comes in in the middle of harsh persecution and go, well, we're blessed anyway. <laughs> man, this is Christ sitting there talking to him and going, listen, buddy. Understand, if they hate you, they hated me first. If they're coming after you, they came after me first. As a matter of fact, the only reason they're coming after you is because of me. It is me they're seeing in you. Man, when they brought the hammer down on Stephen, it wasn't because of Stephen. It was because they saw in him Jesus Christ. And they ground their teeth at And they stoned Him. Friends, Christ is not indifferent to your suffering from evil. He's not. And we may not have been persecuted to a significant degree. We, we may have never had anybody stone us. We may have never had to escape over a wall in a basket, you know. But let me tell you, when your job's on the line for your faith and you're worried about your kids at home, even though we all know that you can go work at McDonald's, and quite frankly, if someone loses their job at Mount Zion, because of their faith, Mount Zion's going to be there. But we can say that, and it's true. But guys, the persecution of Jesus Christ and their hatred for Him didn't go from, you know, from the manger to the cross. It was everywhere in between. Christ is not indifferent to your suffering under evil. In fact, He understands it better than anyone and truly understands it alone. As a matter of fact, He understands it better than you do. Even when it's happening to you. How should the blessed persecuted respond? If this is, if this is what is triggering, if what triggers the persecution is the righteousness of Christ being formed in us, then how do you respond? And the answer in short would be to respond according to righteousness. Very briefly, 1 Peter chapter 3, and I will be brief. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. Um, basically, Peter does it like this. He gives a do and a do not. Uh, 
Verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind and sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And that's an interesting statement. Okay, so the first thing is there's a, there's a do not and a do, right? So first of all, this is the kingdom of heaven. This is Christ being formed in you. So do not do according to the world and do not do according to lawlessness. Don't repay evil with evil and don't repay reviling with reviling. And remember Peter is writing this, who, who, who is really the, the guy that you want to particularly listen to because he is a guy that when persecution come had previously failed miserably learned his lesson and been restored by Christ and now is proceeding with a lot of wisdom that came out of that failure. So he says the first thing you don't do is you don't respond in kind. The whole reason this is happening is because the righteousness of Christ is being formed in you. Don't respond in evil. Don't repay evil for evil and don't repay reviling for with reviling, but instead bless them. Why? Because to this you were called. Because to this you were called. We're not going to develop it right now. We don't have time. But I just want to say this. We are so human-centric. We're so human-centric. Right, we can read that stuff that we read out of 1 Corinthians. Consider your calling. It is because of God you're in Christ. But if we allow our fleshly minds to, the moment we turn away from that truth, we will revert back to thinking in a way that says it's based on me. And so we have a tendency to read verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And the way we read that is we bless because we were called to bless, and in doing so, we earn a blessing. When the reality is this, for to this you were called, is a sub-cause. The calling is definitive in both the blessing and the obtaining. To this you were called. You were called to bless. To this you were called. You were called to obtain a blessing. It says don't fear. So, so know who you are. Know what you were called to do. You were called to bless. You were called to obtain a blessing. So, so, so don't step outside of that. I mean, the thing that started all this was Christ's righteousness in you. So don't step outside, outside of that and respond with evil. That's number one. Number two, don't fear. Verse 13 through 17, Peter continues and says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you and yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame and he says this for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil Stick with righteousness. Don't try to win the righteous day by responding with evil to evil. And then don't fear them. Don't fear them. 
but instead honor Christ as Lord and understand that if it is God's will that you should suffer, it is better to suffer for good than evil. Trusting in the absolute sovereignty of God is a necessary prerequisite for enduring persecution. To the point that I will make the case in the next couple of weeks, well, the Scripture will make the case, we will expound upon it, um, that if you don't believe that God is sovereign, you will not endure. You won't. You won't. Which is why in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 10, Jesus is going to teach him how to pray. And when he does, he's, he does it like this. Verse 7, he says, When you pray, do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray them like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It means holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The things that Christ is going to ask His people to endure for the righteousness that is being formed in them will require them to believe not in the circumstances around them, but will require them to believe and trust in a God who wills it for them and is in control not only of the circumstances at the moment, but much more to the point, the end in which it will be resolved. Christ is our righteousness. He is our righteousness. So I'll leave you with this today because I'm done. Men will not endure to the end for a code or creed of righteousness. They will not. We will cry uncle every single time. But men will endure to the end for Christ. They'll endure to the end for Him. If they love Him, and are called according to His purpose, not some dry, detached code, but for one who came to fulfill it on their behalf. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For the one that we can say because of Him, we are in God. For that men will endure. And I pray that He has been faithful to His people over the millennium, so He will find us to be faithful in Him as well. That's just the start. We'll pick up there next week. Let's pray.